Thank you. I want to pray for you, okay? Let, let's pray for these folks. Father, we give thanks to you that uh, you would add to this family. And we just acknowledge together how absolutely essential it is for us to depend upon you, to trust in you, to walk in faith every single day. And we pray that as a congregation, we would be a blessing uh, in the lives of these new members. And likewise, God, that you would use them and their gifts and their ability, their resources, everything that you've given them to be a blessing to others. And uh, we just thank you that we get to celebrate this moment with them this morning. And uh, we pray that you would now teach us as we study, as we set aside a time to hear from you. In all of this, we give you thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. Well, as I said, we're in a series um, that's about this subject of commitment. Uh, We're talking about the power and the purpose of making and keeping commitments in our lives, different kinds of commitments. In fact, I've even said that the commitments we make actually tend to define us. And uh, we've also been talking about the fact that in our day and age, there's a lot of suspicion around this thing of making commitments. In fact, I think you could probably accurately argue that um, we live in a culture that is somewhat commitment avoidant or uh, commitment phobic. Uh, Nowhere is this more prevalent and apparent than in the area of relationships and the kinds of commitments we make in relationships, which is our topic this morning. And it's funny, I still remember the day that I made one of the biggest commitments in my life. And that was the day when I brought home uh, Moses, our little cat. There he is. But I jest, of course, because that was nowhere near the biggest commitment. The biggest commitment I think I probably ever made in my life was, of course, the commitment that I made to Holly. And that was the day that we took each other's hands. And uh, that is me. And that is Holly. When we got married, I I told Holly, uh, I said, honey, I know you and your mom are planning the wedding and it's all good and great with that. So there's one thing, please don't make me do, and that is wear a white tuxedo. <laughs> and that should have tipped me off for what was to come. Um, we took each other's hands like so many of you, and we exchanged rings, and we made promises. We said, I take you to be my wedded husband. I take you to be my wedded wife for better and for worse. In other words, we use those sacred, very, very important words, I take you. Few words are more powerful Few words are more profound. Few words are more meaningful than those words. Even (laughs) few words are more anxiety-producing than those words. I take you. Uh, Because what if we change? Uh, What if we find that our feelings uh, begin to change over the years? Or what if we discover that we have too many disagreements? What, What if, for example, I find out that she is one of those people that puts the toilet paper on the roll and it comes underneath as opposed to over the top, which is what the biblical directive would be for that. What do you do when those moments happen and continue to happen? How will commitment survive? Uh, So you wonder, why do human beings do this? I mean, interestingly enough, more and more people today say we shouldn't make these kinds of commitments. 
More and more people are saying human beings aren't really biologically suited for that kind of commitment. You may know this. In the animal kingdom, very few animals make this kind of life partnership commitment. Some do, but not many. Human beings, of course, are one of those uh, groups that do. But what happens when you have a change of heart? Wouldn't it be best, wouldn't it be safest just to avoid making these kinds of commitments all together? That's what many have come to believe. And so people move in together, or they put off marriage, uh, or they hook up but don't date. Uh, They don't take the relationship aspect seriously. They just enjoy sex recreationally, no strings attached. And today technology makes all of this so much easier to have happen, so much more convenient. When I was in college, if you wanted to have a date with somebody, you actually had to pick up the phone. And oddly enough, it was attached to the wall. I don't know if you can remember that far back. And you had to call someone. I mean, it took guts. It took courage. It took emotional intelligence. Today, you can get a phone app. I'm not making this up. You can get phone apps for your phone that will help you meet up, hook up, shack up, and break up all with the touch of a button, all done with very little or no commitment. Now, there's real data that supports this. Just to give you some numbers, you may know this. The marriage rate in the United States has been declining for the last three decades, the last 30 years. It's been going down. A survey that was done in 2010, so this is seven years old, showed almost half of young adults between the ages of 18 and 29 in the United States think that marriage has become largely obsolete and unnecessary. That's, that's very significant, that statistic. We are replacing marriage in our culture, this idea of I take you for better or for worse with I take you tonight, but maybe not tomorrow. That's what we're doing. And it's interesting, over 2 million weddings will take place this year alone. And statistics tell us that about half of those weddings will not make it to year 15. Half of them. And that doesn't include the number of couples who stay married, but they're... They kind of wish they weren't, you know. The relationship is running cold. They're growing distant. Things are getting stale. And here's the thing. This is about far more than just data, of course. We're talking about people here. You and me, our hearts, our lives, the things that matter most to human beings. That's what we're talking about. And I know there's a lot of different stories and circumstances of people right now who are gathered in this room and who are listening to this message. Some of you are single. Some of you are married. Some of you are single and want to be married. Some of you are married and honestly, you wonder if it wouldn't be better to be single. Some of you are in a relationship or some of you are just coming out of a relationship. Some of you are in a friends with benefits relationship. Some of you are in a friends without benefits relationship, which is better, I promise you. It sounds worse, but it's actually better. It's healthier. The point is, we are all over the place relationally, even when we gather in a church. But that being said, here's what's true for all of us. This is something that's similar for all of us. Doing relationships is the real deal. Doing relationships is personal. Doing relationships is vulnerable, and it is hard for all of us, regardless of our circumstances. This June, uh, Holly and I will have been married for 40 years. You would think, you would think that I would be an expert on this thing of relationships with all the practice that I have. I mean, wearing white tuxedos and stuff. 
But the truth is I stand with each and every one of you in the messiness and the hurt and the blessing of relationships. I mean, relationships can be so, so good. And they can also be so, so difficult, so bad. This morning, I'd like to talk about three aspects of committed relationships. I'd like to look at the why and the what and the how of committed relationships. And just dive right into this. The first thing, the why. Why should people commit to one another in relationships? Why do this? Isn't this just kind of old-fashioned? Aren't people too unpredictable to be making those kinds of commitments one to another? Isn't it safer to avoid commitment and thereby avoid hurt? I think in order to answer questions like that, you got to ask yet a different question. Namely, what are the costs and what are the risks of avoiding commitment, which is what many do? You know, there's a ton of research on this. Some of you may have heard of a research project. It's called the Grant Study. Uh, It's the longest-running study on human development uh, in history. It began in 1938 at Harvard University. 268 individuals they were using in this study, and they studied them over a period of 75 years, so from their teens all the way into their 80s and their 90s. And the goal was very simple in this study. The question was simply, you know, they wanted to find out what produces lasting happiness. That's what they were looking for. And they followed these individuals, again, 75 years. They looked at their health patterns, their medical records. They did brain scans on these people. They interviewed their spouses. They interviewed their family. They interviewed, when possible, some of their co-workers. And there are tens of thousands of pages of data from this study. And here's what they found. They found that happiness, hear me on this, happiness did not increase with greater wealth. They found that happiness did not increase with more success. And they found that happiness did not increase with higher achievement. And we kind of need to pause for a moment when we read that. And we just need to reflect and kind of say, wow, because that is what we all believe in our broken, fallen state. You see, these are real lives. This is real data. It's so interesting to me, when you read conclusions of this study, uh, some of the observations of this study, you you could read it and think, oh, this has come from some church group. Or or this is coming from some pastor who did a study. Or this is coming from uh, some Christian study group. And yet, not, not the case at all. It's coming from clinical researchers. They found that happiness is no way correlated with greater wealth or more success or higher achievement. They also found that happiness had nothing to do with fame. It had nothing to do with reputation. It had nothing to do with social impact. In other words, you know, how much impact have you had on the culture around you? Had nothing to do with any of that. What they found was that happiness correlated directly to one consistent factor. Over and over and over again, the factor that they found that was essential to human flourishing and happiness was lasting, loving relationships. Lasting, loving relationships. Dr. George Valiant, who led the study for over 30 years, said that in the research, he said their research proved that there are basically two pillars of happiness. One is love, period. He says the other is finding a way of coping with life that does not push love, or in other words, people, away. 
So lasting, loving relationships, that's the answer. That's the key to happiness, which, by the way, should be no surprise. Not to anyone who knows God or follows Jesus, because scripture has been teaching this basic principle for thousands of years. When God created human beings, what did he say? He placed, uh, creates Adam and he puts him in the garden. And here's what he says. He says, it is not good for the man to be alone. God's observation, which is remarkable if you think about the fact that that statement was made before sin entered into the picture, Right? That statement was made when the markets were up and the rent was down and there were no wars and the Broncos were winning. (laughs) I mean, everything was as it should be in the world. And God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Adam lacked relationship. And not just casual friendships or friends with benefits. That's obviously not what God is talking about. God is pointing out that Adam lacked a committed, loving relationship. Someone who was committed to him. Someone to whom he could be committed. The text goes on to frame it this way. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. That's the language of loving commitment. Some of you will be familiar with the King James translation of the original uh, Hebrew in this case, uh, this idea of leaving and cleaving. That's what the King James, that's how the King James translates this. The man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. That cleaving language portrays the making of a commitment, the making of a covenant, promises being made between two people. And such a big commitment, in fact, that uh, it trumped every other human commitment. It was such a big commitment to, to leave your family and cleave to your wife that, you know, there's that, that language of leaving. You leave the previous family in order to constitute or create a new one. In that day, a home was not just where you lived until you went to college. Home was the place of education. It was the place of economic stability. There was usually a family business. Home was the place where you learned that family business, that trade. To leave one's father and mother was to put one's life and livelihood at risk, all for the sake of a commitment to another human being. And here's the deal. From the very beginning, God designed us to live in the context of committed loving relationships. That's the point. It's a huge point. God expects us to enter into relationships where promises are made because in the context of those promises, promises to love, promises to be faithful, promises to help, promises to have one another's back, promises to speak the truth to one another, human beings flourish with those kinds of promises, those kinds of relationships whether we're talking about a marriage relationship or just a friendship, promises. And that is the why of commitment. That's the answer to the question, why make commitments? Because if you're a human being, and most of us are, this is the only way you can flourish is in connection to other human beings where promises are made and kept And we practice the process of promise-making and promise-keeping. It's just that simple. And that leads to the next question, the what. What kind of commitments are we talking about exactly when we think about this subject of commitment and, and human beings? Are we talking just about marriage? Or does the idea of commitment have application beyond 
the marriage covenant or the marriage relationship? And the answer is, of course, yes, absolutely. It has uh, relevance to other relationships. Again, the idea of forming and being in a committed relationship is essential to human flourishing. It's essential to human happiness, whether we are talking about marriage or whether we are talking about family or whether uh, we are talking about friendship. One of the weaknesses in a lot of churches, I'd say it's a bit of a weakness here. Uh, It's not usually intentional, but it happens. And that is uh, speaking to single people as if they're somehow second-class citizens. We, We can do this in churches. Or treating singleness as if being single were some kind of disease. Um, you know, here's the thing. The Bible doesn't speak about being single as a problem to be corrected. It's kind of interesting. Christianity, in fact, was the first major religion to uphold singleness as an honorable and faithful way to live. And uh, how, how could it not? I mean, Jesus was single, right? The apostle Paul was single, was single. Uh, the apostle Paul actually wrote about the gift and the blessing of being single. He wrote these words. He said, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. Is that true? Hello. Says an unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world and how she can please her husband. Is that true? Okay. The women did better. I am am saying this, he says, for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. There's a certain goodness about being single. So a decision not to be married is a good decision, Paul says. It can actually help you uh, be more single-minded in your, in your practice, in your devotion of following the Lord. However, choosing not to marry does not mean that you live without committed, loving relationships. We know this. I mean, look at Jesus. Look at Paul. Their life and their ministry flourished largely because of those committed relationships that they had and friendships. Jesus had a network of friends. We know about this. And he was wholly committed to these networks of friends. He had the 12 disciples or apostles. These were guys he did almost everything with. They traveled, they ate, they served, they laughed, they studied together, they worshiped together. He once told this group in particular, uh, he, he said to them, I no longer call you servants, which because of him being a rabbi and them being the disciples was an appropriate term. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from the Father, I have made known to you. Friends. The Son of God is referring to his associates as friends. Interestingly, most of those disciples to whom he was speaking were married. And uh, yet here is Jesus. He's a single man, but he is interacting with these families as a single man. He's He's healthily related to the Father. He's healthy in healthy relationships of friendship. Yeah, that's being single did not stop him from forming committed relationships. Jesus even stayed committed to his friends when they betrayed him. When they denied him. You know, Judas, of course, you all know this story, denies Jesus. Uh, 
In fact, he leads the soldiers to the place where Jesus, he knew Jesus would be. And he betrays him there. We read in Matthew 26, it says, now the betrayer had arranged, that's Judas, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the soldiers. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. And then the men stepped forward and they seized Jesus and they arrested him. And the whole trial and saga of Jesus' death begins. But I'll tell you what I marvel at here. Disappointed as Jesus obviously was, he still expresses what's true for him. Namely that Judas was still his friend. You see, even when, when Judas is disloyal to the core, Jesus is faithful. Jesus continues to love. Jesus understands the practice and the value of committed, loving relationships. Even when his friend turns on him and gives him a kiss of betrayal, friend, he says, do what you came for. In other words, my friendship with you doesn't change. My loyalty to you doesn't change. My love for you doesn't change. And that, that friends, is incredible commitment. That is incredible. There was a study done in 2006 that found that one out of four Americans lack close friendship. So in this survey that they took, one out of four Americans admitted or checked the box that that said, yeah, I don't really have any close friends. They don't have somebody that they can call in a crisis. They don't have somebody that they can call when in pain. They don't have somebody to call when tragedy strikes. And let me tell you, that's not okay. Some of us here this morning feel that burden even now. You know, the writer of Proverbs emphasizes what we're talking about this morning, namely that friendship, committed friendship, is absolutely essential. Proverbs 17, a friend loves at all times, just as we saw Jesus doing there, loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You fall into adversity, that brother, that sister is right there to lend some kind of assistance or maybe just listen. Proverbs 27 says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. What a picture. Your enemy tells you what you want to hear, when you want to hear it, not your friend. The point is committed friends stick with us. Committed friends love us enough to tell us the truth when we need to hear the truth. Committed friends can be trusted. Committed friends are absolutely essential for our happiness and our health, spiritual health, emotional health, physical health, you name it. Committed friends are essential. Now, let me ask you, who is that friend for you? I'm guessing that for some of you that that may be why you're here this morning. God is, he's nudging you. He's telling you, you need to focus on relationships and friendships. Let these things form in your life. Go after the pursuit of these things. You can't keep going it alone. Who is that friend for you? Now, an equally important question on the other side of this For whom are you that friend? To whom have you given permission to call you at any time, to ask you for anything, to interrupt your busy life with a request, with a a need, or maybe the truth, not just the truth you want to hear? For whom are you that friend? Sometimes I think we long for but lack friendship because we are too 
occupied with other things. We put those things that we think will make us happy at a higher priority than lasting, loving, committed relationships. And when we do that, we're making a terrible mistake. Those things are okay, but they cannot replace our need for committed, loving friendships. We see this in the life of Jesus. You read through the Gospels, you find out there was 120 people that must have followed Jesus around quite a bit, listened to him teach, been in many of the synagogues where he would teach and preach. And therefore, they were, they were committed followers. They were gathered together after his death, this 120. There were 72 who Jesus actually selected and sent out to tell other communities about him. So this group was even a little closer to Jesus, perhaps, than the rest of that 120. Sends them out to tell others the good news of the kingdom. And then there's, of course, the 12, the 12 apostles that he just poured himself into. But then, of course, there was the three, Peter, James, and John, that he had an even more intimate friendship with. And uh, all I'm saying is that that is one of the what's of committed relationship, this thing of committed friendship. Absolutely vital and essential for all of us. Now, of course, another kind of committed relationship is the whole dating marriage thing. That's another picture, another kind of relationship. Dating uh, usually begins this in our culture, and that is a weird, odd custom. A new one, too, I might add. Dating is not something that has existed uh, throughout the ages, and it certainly hasn't existed in most cultures. We have a lot of confusion around this dating thing in the church. I'm not sure dating is a good thing or not. I don't know. Um, There are a lot of books about dating. You can read about them. The Ten Commandments of Dating, the rules, time-tested secrets for capturing the heart of Mr. Wright and and, uh, Mrs. Wright. That sounds awful. Mars and Venus on a date. Uh, The Mingling of Souls. There's another book called The Game, which looks at the whole dating thing as a game. And and then there's the one called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. You know, whatever. All kinds of stuff out there on dating. Um, but most of the message that you, that you hear or that are associated with this idea of dating is to help you find Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright. Help you find the right person. There's actually a TV show about this where a man or a woman actually date 20 to 25 people all at the same time to find the right person. What's the name of that show? Yeah, The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, yeah. Yeah. Most people think that a healthy relationship is about finding the right person. That's why we date. That's what most people think. Not true. You see, the truth is a healthy relationship involves two people who are committed to becoming the right person. That's what's essential. I read a very painful story about a young woman. This young woman grew up in a religious family. She went to church. Uh, She tried to be a good person as she became a young adult. She thought that was the way that she would meet Mr. Wright, but it didn't happen. And so she decided to take a different course, try a whole different lifestyle, the lifestyle that she saw people around her uh, adopting. So she decided to immerse herself in the hookup culture. That's what she did. She began having a lot of casual encounters with men. She figured eventually she'd meet the right person if she just kept putting herself out there, you know. Till one night she met a guy that, frankly, she really liked. She was really attracted to him. 
She said she, he had everything that she was looking for. He was attractive. He was humble. He was talented. He even had deep faith. He was charismatic in terms of his personality. But their conversation didn't really go anywhere. He did not seem to be interested in her. And she went home, and her words, she had a painful epiphany that night as she reflected on what had happened with this young man that she was talking to. And she realized that the man she was looking for wasn't looking for a woman like her. It was a major aha moment for her. And she realized then that she needed to be committed to becoming the right person. That was the thing. That was of paramount importance. And she took this quite seriously. She said that uh, she started to work on her character. She changed some of her friendships, kind of ended some friendships, started some new ones. She got out of the hookup scene altogether. She even went to a counselor because of some of the trauma around that in her life. She began to prepare herself for the commitment that she wanted to make someday. She wanted to become who the person she was looking for is looking for. Does that make sense? And obviously it changed her life, put it on a whole different trajectory. Someone once told me um, that the Bible's view of sex is naive. We were talking about certain values. They said the Bible's view of sex is naive. I found that intriguing. Uh, they said that people should wait. Uh, the, the idea that, that the Bible says that people should wait to have sex in a context of promises, marriage. Uh, they said that's just utterly and absolutely naive. Uh, given the fact especially that people are waiting longer and longer to get married, they said. And given the fact that, you know, people need and want intimacy, even sexual intimacy. And I remember thinking, well, okay, you know, I get that part about human longings and all that, I understand. I do know that we all want and need intimacy, but the question, of course, is what kind of intimacy do you want? I mean... The intimacy of knowing a person isn't committed to you? Is that what you're looking for? Because that's what a lot of the culture is pursuing, and that's what a lot of our culture promotes. The intimacy of them saying, I take you at least tonight, but maybe not tomorrow? I mean, is that the intimacy that human beings are longing? I don't think so. I don't think that's what we long for. That's not the intimacy we need or want. I think the Bible probably is a lot wiser than this particular person presumed it was. You know, even if you're not a Jesus follower, even if you think the Bible really doesn't get it or that the church is culturally antiquated, do you know that secular studies even today confirm the fact that people who sleep together and people who live together prior to marriage are actually less committed to one another? Here's the fact. Statistically, they are less likely to stay together up to that 15-year point. If you've lived together, if you've been sexually active with each other before marriage, that's a statistical fact. And the other, in other words, you could put it this way. You could say that journey going down that path, that kind of hookup culture, that decision does not lead us toward a healthier, more committed relationship. It actually leads in the opposite direction. It just does statistically, which I think is why God designed sex to be a part of a, a life-uniting, committed, loving relationship. It's sex is great. Trust me, I've done it. It's great. It's greater. <laughs> what? That shocks you, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's greater because of what it says and what it does in the life of a couple who've made promises, committed, loving promises 
to each other. Now, is that countercultural? Yes, absolutely it is. Will people think that you're strange if you live that way? Probably. Will it take hard work and honest conversation and a lot of trust in God? Yes, absolutely. But will it give you the chance, the best chance at a lifetime of connection and trust and love and intimacy? Yes, absolutely. Which raises another question. I mean, what if you've fallen short in this? What if you've messed this up already? What if you're in a relationship that's not healthy? Well, let me say to you, you're in exactly the right place then. You see, church is actually a community of people whose relationships are all in need of repair. Am I right? Yeah, who are we kidding? The church is a community that should know how much we need Jesus' help in our relationships. The church should know how much Jesus can help us in our relationships. Think about how Jesus treated people who struggled in their relationships. Think about this. There was Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, who denied him, denied knowing him. Uh, There was Judas, already looked at that. One of the inner 12 who betrayed him. There was the woman who was caught in adultery and brought to Jesus, and everybody wanted Jesus to condemn her. There was the Samaritan woman at the well whose history Jesus knew, and through a conversation, Jesus welcomed her into relationship. What did Jesus do with these people? He showed them grace. He offered them love. He listened, he accepted, and he forgave them. He offered them a vision and a call of a better life, a better way to do life, a life full of loving, committed relationships. And friends, that's his invitation to us each and every day, even when we stand in the shadow of relationships that we break. That's the good news of the gospel right there. Thank you, Jesus. Today's a new day. Maybe some of you are feeling a need to make changes in your life around relationships. Well, I'm here to tell you, Jesus can help. He can guide, he can empower us in the commitments that we make to make wise commitments and to be able to keep those commitments and he'll show us the path on even how to repair the commitments we have, if we'll listen. None of this is easy. Whether we're talking about a relationship and a marriage, or whether we're talking about friendships. None of it is easy. Every day, one person is deciding to forgive the other person. One person having, uh, is, has to have the courage to say the hard truths. One person learning to listen, really listen to the other person. One person shifting their priorities for the sake of the other person. One person making sacrifices for the other. It's messy, it's hard, it's work, but it's what we were made for. I know a lot of you have been through broken marriages, perhaps, or broken friendships, maybe betrayals. And these things are not ever as clean and simple and tidy as we would want them to be, not ever. But understand, in the process of making 
and keeping commitments, that something wonderful gets forged in our lives, something that's absolutely essential to our spiritual growth and spiritual health, and that is this thing of trust. The truth is you can't really live without trust, trusting people or without people trusting you. You can't flourish without this. And that is why God created things like marriage and like committed loving friendships so that we could love and be loved and trust and be trusted and so that we could forgive and be forgiven. And I have to say, when I hear people arguing that commitment is restrictive or confining or that it destroys freedom, you know, you lose your freedom when you make commitments. Well, What kind of freedom is it that takes you down a path where there's no one you can count on at the end of that road and no one you can depend on and no one who is going to be there and no one you can trust and no one who trusts you? Good luck with that. In the end, friends, commitment doesn't lead to less freedom. It leads to more freedom. It's not less secure. It's the essential soil of, of security that we all need to have to be healthy spiritually, to be healthy in our relationships. Not less happiness, more happiness. And this leads to the last question, which I've just got a, a quick word to say. How do we do this, this committed relationship thing? How do we keep our commitments? Well, here's the thing. On your own and in your own strength, based on your own willpower or your religious dedication, you can't. You won't. You will fail miserably. I've watched people try. I've tried. You just can't do this on your own. You see, God did not create committed relationships so that we could live, on, uh, live out our lives on our own without his help. All of this is one of the many things in life that drive us to him, don't you see? He created committed relationships so that we would recognize every day our need for him, for his love, for his grace, for his Renewal, because the truth is, in your committed relationships, you're going to disappoint the people you make commitments to, and they are going to disappoint you. Where do you turn? What do you do with that? Well, you go to the one person who is always faithful, always committed. You see, here's the thing. We don't commit ourselves to others because we're strong or we're noble or we commit ourselves to others because there is a God who is first committed to us. I love how this is framed up in the New Testament. The apostle John says we love because what? Yeah, he first loved us. And the key word there is not love. The key word is first. You see, he committed to you first. He made a promise to you. And to me, first, before you step into any relationship of any kind, Jesus first commits to a relationship with you. That creates a foundation, a place of trust where you can take risks with others relationally. Jesus said that he would never leave you. He would never turn his face. He would never walk away. He would never, ever uh, leave you, but he would always be there. He would give you wisdom. He would give you grace upon grace to love, to trust, to forgive, and to serve, to take a risk and be a committed friend or a committed spouse, even when life gets messy. We do all of this on the basis of Jesus' promise to us, is my point. 
Some of you are in marriages that are hard and some of you have been holding on to scorecards in relationships with friends or spouses where you're, you're keeping copious notes about what he or she has done that have let you down, that have hurt you over the years and you carry those scorecards around and that's just poison. Some of you are going through a divorce right now or already have. Some of you are not married, but you, you desperately want to be. Regardless where you are in this matter of committed relationships, what I want to end with, what I want to emphasize this morning is that we begin and end with the gospel that God first made a promise to you and he keeps that promise. That's the basis of our relationships with each other because our relationships with each other are so difficult, so challenging sometimes. They can be so hurtful. They can be such a blessing. But we enter into relationship on the basis of the relationship that we have with Jesus. You see, his grace is more powerful than my sin. His grace is more powerful than my shame. His grace is more powerful than my brokenness. He can help me keep my promises even when my own personal inclination is to not do that. We all need Jesus. And so we gather together like this. We give a message like this and we call people to commit and to renew loving commitments, not because it's a good religious thing to do and we, we do it because we have a hope. We believe that in this God, we find someone who is eternally committed to us. This God who gave his life for us saying, not just I love you, not just I forgive you, but I take you, you see, for better and for worse. That's God's covenant with us. That's his promise to us. That's the gospel. Now, you know, some of you, I would just, just close by saying this. Some of you, some of you need counseling. <laughs> I mean, you might be processing broken stuff in your life that's so deep and so hurtful. You need to talk to somebody is the point. And I, I just applaud. Anytime somebody comes to me and says, you know, I need to talk to somebody. Uh, can I talk to you? And I always say, no. Um, but I say, I know somebody you can talk to who'd give you good advice. But I, uh, I always applaud this because that is the most courageous thing in the world. And some of you, have, you're, you're processing, processing such deep hurt. And yes, Jesus is with you and you know it, but you're, you, just, you need to reflect with somebody about that. And you need to hear the gospel preached and proclaimed to you in that counseling context. And we're a church that would help you with that if you need it. That would be one thing. Others of you, you need the same thing. You just need a different dose of it. You need to get in a life group. Let people get to know you. And you get to know them. Let down the barrier, the mask, take it off. Speak the truth. Talk about your need of Jesus. Let Hear about them, talk about their need of Jesus. Study together, pray together. And start the process of developing loving, committed friendships. Vitally important. Amen? Pray with me. Father, Lord, this thing of relationship, uh, is, it's really the challenge of our lives. Uh, how do we love others? How do we take the risk of letting them into our lives? How... Do we keep our promises that we make to them? And I know it sounds so trite, Lord, but really the solution to all of that is in Jesus who first loved us. May you deepen our trust and our love in him. 
so that we can become better friends and better husbands and better wives and better parents so that we can look more like Jesus when it comes to this thing of committed, loving relationships. Dear God, help us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.